Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we're starting a new series uh, this morning, and I've entitled it His Story. And um, what we mean by that is God's story uh, with the human family. So this is going to be a long trek through uh, Old Testament history. Uh, We will interrupt it for uh, other series at times, so I don't want you to feel like, oh no, there's going to be, you know, five years in the Old Testament. Not necessarily. But I think that one of the problems we have in, in church life is one of the great concerns for people in my position, scholars around the world in seminaries and Bible colleges is this. There is a growing illiteracy in the body of Christ. And we all know that. Part of that is because when I was young, so back in about 1920, we were in church about five times a week. And that's not an exaggeration. We were in church like three different hours on Sunday, Wednesday night, another children's or youth night, Awana. So there were all of these Christian education experiences that took place in our lives that built a real foundation of the story of God. And today, that's really eroded into Sunday morning and maybe another activity uh, for adults and children. But even in the, uh, even in the Sunday morning, we're, you know, we're, we're hitting people maybe one and a half or two times a month. One and a half times a month is now considered faithful church attendance, sadly. So I just want you to think of that. Like if you send your kids to school, you went to school five days a week, and now you send your kids to school one and a half days a week, are they going to graduate from high school with the same knowledge? No. And that's the concern about the church. So I think it helps us sometimes to just begin at the beginning of the Bible and sort of sequentially learn. And so that's what we're starting today. And I've entitled our message, Shattered. One of our problems with God is that we tend to blame him for the world we live in. And if you're talking to people who aren't people of faith and bring up Christianity, one of their struggles is going to be You know, this is God's world, and it's a mess. I don't want to follow a God who sort of allows all these things. But one of the problems is we don't have an accurate view of the difference between creation, what God actually made, what God intended, and reality today. What God created, what we did to it, that we seem to hold God accountable for, interestingly, and how big a difference there is between the two. Sarah Ames writes, this is her daughter's view of a broken world. My seven-year-old daughter Jessica is a deep thinker when it comes to theological questions. Recently we discussed why bad things happen sometimes, rereading the story of Adam and Eve and how sin came into the world. Later that week Jessica was ill, had to stay home from school. Feeling miserable, she told me, if only Adam and Eve hadn't eaten the fruit, I wouldn't be sick. Before I could answer, she added, of course, if they didn't eat it, we'd be sitting here naked. So that's, that's one view. It's true, but I'm not sure she fully grasps the depths of what sin did to the world. I'm afraid it's bigger than that. I think a more accurate view of it would be Donald Miller. Donald Miller writes, I have on my desktop a picture of a boy named Sasha. Sasha is one of the children of Chernobyl. 
a young boy born after the disaster, the nuclear disaster that happened when the core at a nuclear facility in Russia melted and leaked and affected the nearby population. The little boy, Sasha, is perhaps five years old, and he's gripping with a tiny arm the side of a crib. His other hand is flailing upward toward his ear, his head and shoulders, the only portion of his body that is not mutated. On the right side of Sasha's chest rises a lump the size of a softball. His belly grows out disfigured before him as though he were pregnant. It's a painful sight. Sasha's legs are oversized and blocky. He has no knees, only rounded flesh flowing awkwardly to his oversized feet, which have four toes each, the largest of which, as big as my fist, is distanced from the others and pointing itself in the opposite direction. From the bottom of his stomach protrudes a rounded flow of flesh as though it were a separate limb stopped in half growth. Sasha, the article in which I found the picture states, is in constant pain and lives that way in constant pain. As terrible as it is to compare Sasha to ourselves, Donald Miller says, I have to go there. I have to say that you and I were not supposed to be the way we are. As creatures in need of somebody outside of ourselves to name us, to, as creatures incomplete outside the companionship of God, our souls are born distorted. I am convinced of it. I'm convinced that Moses was right, that his explanation was greater than Freud's or Maslow's or Pavlov's. I believe without question that none of us are happy in the way we're supposed to be happy. I believe that nobody on this planet is so secure, so confident in their state that they feel the way Adam and Eve felt in the garden before they knew they were naked. I believe we are in the wreckage of a war, a kind of Hiroshima, a kind of Mount St. Helens with souls distorted like the children of Chernobyl. As terrible as it is to think about these things, as ugly as it is to face them, I have to see the world this way in order for it to make sense to me. I have to believe that something happened and we are walking around holding our wounds. I think Donald Miller has a pretty good glimpse of human depravity. Who knows the damage that was done? to us. Something has been radically altered. We are not close to the original. What God created, what God intended, we broke, we shattered into a million pieces. Now I want to read Genesis chapter 2 with you. I don't know if I've ever preached on Genesis chapter 2, but it gives the backstory of Adam and Eve. And so I want to start there. We're going to read Genesis chapter 2. So it's on page 1 of your Bible. That one should be pretty easy to find. And Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis chapter 1, you have the creation story, six days of God creating. And I'm going to get into creation a little bit when we get to the flood in Genesis chapter 7 and 8. So I'm not going to deal with creation now. We're going to look back on creation when we get to the flood. We're going to talk a little about the geology of the earth and so on. And uh, we'll, we'll deal with that then. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2 with man. And Genesis chapter 2 is sort of a parenthetical breakout of the creation of man and a few details about that. So you're kind of taking the sixth day of creation. You're breaking it out into chapter 2. 
and it reads as historical narrative. I want you to keep that in mind. This reads as historical narrative. Places are named, people are named. Adam and Eve are not presented as mythological figures. They begin the genealogies of all kinds of genealogies in the Old Testament. These are the first two people on the planet that God created out of nothing. So, Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts... By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Now, Moses is writing this because he wants us to understand that God's establishing the Sabbath there in his own practice for man. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth, and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden. There he placed the man who he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The Dilium and the onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third is the Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it you shall surely die. Now, just before we move on there, God is giving this instruction to Adam he doesn't give it to Adam and Eve. He gives it to Adam, and you'll see Adam is then kind of telling Eve when she shows up what God had told them. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. We would all agree with that. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Notice this is not sort of a caveman here. We have a highly intellectual being that's been created by God that is naming and subduing creation. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, among other things, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman or Isha because she was taken out of man or Ish. So it's Ish and Isha. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And here's the verse that sets up chapter three. So this is the moral sort of comment by Moses. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. First, we're to look into the backstory. Just two points here: one in chapter two, one in chapter three. The backstory, God's ideal world, and its first crack. Now, Genesis one gives us an overview of creation, and again, as I said a moment ago, we're going to dive into that more when we get to Genesis six through eight and look at the Noahic flood and its impact on the globe. 
Genesis 3, right after this, gives us the fall and how sin came into the world. So Genesis 2 is setting up sort of the perfect environment that God created for man before we made the choice that impacted it and ourselves. But I want to back up even a little further. I want to explore some things that really aren't talked about much in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I want to explore God's nature and his motivation to create. Now, why would he do that? Why should we do that? Why should we understand that? Because a perfect and holy God, existing from all eternity, created a world as an expression of his nature. We're going to talk about why God created. God is an all-powerful and infinite God. So when he created everything that we see, he spoke matter into existence. He spoke an incredible amount of complexity into existence. Now, if we get into the whole macroevolution versus microevolution debate, which we can when we talk about the flood, the reality is I, I absolutely believe in what's called microevolution. We see species changing all of the time. But I do not buy for a second macroevolution. Very hard to prove macroevolution. I know not all of us are going to be on the same page. I respect your right to be wrong. It's okay. We'll settle this in heaven. It's okay. It's just a joke, you know, from the American. Yeah, anyway, so the reality is we're not going to agree on all of this, and that's okay. But if you believe in macroevolution, you're going to have a problem with some other things in the scriptures. And often you make that concession, not realizing now you're going to have problems with certain things Jesus said, certain things the apostles said, and that is problematic. You put the whole word of God sort of on its head, and you're questioning more than you probably know you're questioning when you just question Genesis chapter 1. So God has this infinite and powerful nature. It's reflected in his control and creation over a universe that we know today is approximately 94 billion, not miles across, light years across. That's what we have discovered about what God has made. 94 billion light years we're sort of in, you know, the, I'm not saying we're in the center of the universe, but from our perspective, we can see out 47 billion light years. That's what we understand. So if, we, if we're projecting in both directions, almost 100 billion light years. And interestingly, physicists don't even know how the universe entirely holds together. They would admit that. And theories keep taking place. Is it expanding? Is it going to eventually contract? And we'll have not the big bang that's expanding, but the big collapse. There's a verse in Colossians that says something very interesting. It, it, it talks about God's ongoing activity in creation. It says, by him, all things consist or hold together. In other words, Jesus Christ still holds together the universe that he created. Now, before this created universe, whether you believe it's young or old, we do not know anything about God's activity. Now, you say, what do you mean by we don't know anything about God's activity? Well, I just want to go philosophically for a second here. I don't, I don't assume that this universe is the only thing that God has ever done in the history of God since God has existed from eternity past. I just don't know. I'm not trying to talk about Star Trek here. and you know, I'm, not, I'm not going there. I'm just saying... The Bible is earth-centered. I can only understand God from the perspective of what he created on this earth and our universe. I don't know what God has been doing from eternity past. But this all-powerful and infinite God created this universe that we can observe that is almost 100 billion light years across, and the earth is the center of his experiment with humanity. 
He's also a moral God. God has a moral nature. The pinnacle of creation in God's mind would be a reflection of his morality in us. There'd be things about God that would be reflected in us, more than just morality. But the reality is, if you look at the end of every, um, every creative day in Genesis chapter 1, it says, God saw that it was good, or tov, the Hebrew word tov. When he gets to the sixth day and he creates man, it was very good, very good. We are the crown of creation. We have this moral nature. We have personality, which involves intellect and will or self-determination. We have moral capacity. We don't just function by instinct. Dogs look at the sky at night and they bark. We look at the sky at night and we ask great questions. We are a reflection of God in that sense. We have personality and we have moral capacity. We're the crown of creation. We're also relational because God is relational and he wanted to make relational beings that he could interact with. The Trinity wanted to fellowship with moral beings created in his image. That's why in chapter one, verses 26 and 27, the Trinity says within itself, let us make man in our image. In Genesis 3, 8, God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day as he evidently regularly did to communicate with Adam and Eve. In Ecclesiastes, it says the end of man or sort of the point of man is to love God and keep his commandments. That's why we were created. The whole plan of redemption is to bring us back to God so that we can be in fellowship with him forever. In other words, God wanted company with beings that reflected a part of his nature. Moral beings, relational beings. So he creates this vast universe puts a reflection of himself on it, calls that day when we start existing very good. Not just good, very good. The stated purpose of man, which you see at the end of chapter one and partly in chapter two as, as he begins to do this, the stated purpose of man was to rule over the rest of creation. That was God's ideal for man on this planet, was to have dominion over it. So you see man naming the animals and so on. But we also know that from other scriptures that God has more in mind than just putting us in charge of the world. It's also to reflect God's glory in nature. God created as a way to reflect himself. The heavens declare the glory of God. So God created to express who he is. And he also created us, from the whole story of salvation, to have fellowship with his image and likeness. He wanted to have fellowship with beings that were created like himself in some ways. So God created man, Adam as first man. And he placed him in a place called Eden, which means delight, beautiful place. It's believed to have been in, now, I probably have had this wrong in my mind, but when you look at the rivers that are described there, which even in a post-flood era, I kind of assumed the Tigris and Euphrates would be in a similar place. I believe one of the others mentioned there might be northern Africa. So it's believed that Eden would have been in the Middle East or northern Africa, sort of based on the rivers, Egypt and the Middle East, and possibly that whole area, because it doesn't say that is all the Garden of Eden. It says there was a garden in Eden. So I, I could be wrong about this, but I want you to look at Eden as potentially this massive tract of land in the Middle East that might include northern Africa and the Mesopotamian area. This massive area would be Eden, and the garden specifically that God had in was in the east of that massive area. Not the garden of Eden, 
but the garden in Eden. And in this garden, man had no boundaries except one. The tree of life was there, which I don't assume was just symbolic, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only moral boundary that Adam and Eve have. There is no sin. There's no proclivity to do the wrong thing. There's no proclivity for Adam and Eve to have a rough day and be bickering back and forth at each other and it to be considered sin. In this perfect world, Adam and Eve saw each other as perfect. They naturally knew what the other needed. They naturally met the other's needs. If they didn't know, they were communicated in perfect ways. (laughs) Exactly. In perfect ways. And then met two people that had the perfect marriage who completely met each other's needs, were suitable for each other. There was no sin. There was no awareness of sin. There was no proclivity towards sin. God had said that sin's penalty would be death. It would be separation from God spiritually. It would also mean physical deterioration, disease, and physical death. Adam was alone at first. He had work. As he's doing his work of naming the animals, he sees he has no suitable companion. He sees male and female of all the other animals. So Adam is alone. It's like the NFL, the no fun league. He is alone. God looked at Adam and said, paraphrasing the Hebrew, this dude needs help. Women would agree with that. God creates Eve. Adam says what you see there as well as, yes! And he is thrilled. Ish is Adam, Isha is Eve, man, woman. Marriage is declared here on the first page of Scripture that a man and a woman are to be together in this union. Ultimately, we know that the one flesh union between a man and a woman, that human sexuality is a reflection of Christ's love for us. That's why it shouldn't be distorted. By the way, because the sexual union between a man and a woman is intended to reflect God's love for us. And male and female are declared as well. Now, I do want to make the point. These are real people. Genealogies that follow in the Old Testament point back to Adam. One of Jesus' genealogies points back to Adam. These are not mythical figures. They're not just a couple of people among the thousands of people that exist on the planet. New Testament apostles and Jesus himself are really historically bad if you don't believe Adam and Eve are the only two people created by God that begin the human race. The end of chapter 2, verse 25, sets up chapter 3. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They've created in this perfect environment. They are naked. He makes this ethical comment. They are naked and they're not ashamed. That will change. Now, another part of the backstory is another part of God's creation that didn't necessarily happen along with the creation of the universe or the creation of this world. It's a creation in the angelic realm where God has created massive numbers of angels. Now, based on a verse in Job, I believe it is, where it talks about the sons of God or the angels sort of celebrating when God creates man, it, it, some would assume, many would assume, that God has created the angelic realm well prior to the creation of the universe. 
And behind the scenes, we know this from other passages of Scripture, there's been some sort of revolt that happened in the angelic realm. Now, this is interesting theology, and we're not sure, but you never see in the Scriptures angels sort of going from good to bad and bad to good. It seems like at one point they had free will, there was this great test, and those that decided to rebel against God became what we call demons, led by Lucifer, who we now call Satan or the devil. Those that decided to be faithful to God stayed. We believe all this happened prior to the creation of man. So behind the scenes, the revolt has happened in the angelic realm. Lucifer, Satan, the devil led a rebellion against God. He, and based on another passage, I believe in Revelation, perhaps a third of that angelic realm were cast out of heaven. And now, of course, as God has created the earth and he's created man, the obvious agenda is to thwart the goals of God's creation, to wreck Eden, to wreck the image of God in humanity, to wreck this human experiment, to wreck this reflection of God in us, to shatter God's creation. That story isn't in Genesis. We just see the results of that story. And this first, or this fallen angelic realm, is the first crack in God's creation, which is not discussed prior to chapter 3, but it shows up there. And now the story we all know. If you have, well, we'll read this in a second. But the first point, or the second point, then shattered the day we broke the world and ourselves. So God created mankind with free will. Love and devotion to God are only possible when hate and apathy are also possible. So I know, I mean, I, I've listened to people frustrated that God has created us with free will. Really, would you really have it any other way? None of us want robots. None of us want people like that. We want to know that we're truly loved, although the Stepford Wives was a very interesting movie. But anyway, that's another subject. Okay, that's funny. Okay, take that one back. But God wants to be freely loved and chosen, just like we want to be freely loved and chosen. And this tree is the test. And as long as Adam and Eve love and trust God, they're going to demonstrate that they believe in him they will find good, the good life, tov, good versus evil. And the way they're going to express that they trust God for good, for tov, is they're not going to eat from the one tree that God has given them as a moral test. Satan, having led the rebellion in the angelic realms, is ready to destroy this new budding moral experiment. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If you have the Bible there, it's on page 2. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, now I realize this is a little hard for some of us, like, well, wow, a snake is talking. Well, again, remember, Eve's been on the planet for maybe a few days. I don't know that an animal talking would seem as unusual to us as it would to them. So the serpent said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. All right, now God never said you shouldn't touch it. I think Adam said to Eve, All right, God said we're not supposed to eat from this tree, but honey, that's in there. Honey, we're not even going to touch it. All right, in fact, I'm going to put a little snow fence around it, you know, one of those orange ones, you know, just so you know, that's the one, you know, I've been here a little longer than you, babe, half a day. 
Men are still saying that to their wives, I've been, I've been on this earth a little longer than you, honey. Adam said it. I've been here longer than you, an extra six or eight hours, and I'm telling you, that's the tree we're not supposed to eat from. I'm going to put a little snow fence around that. You stay away. Don't touch it. So she's misrepresenting God, but I don't know that she's doing it intentionally. I think she was told that by Adam. Serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Tov, all that God made being good, and evil. That would be new. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate and then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. I love this. God said, who told you you were naked? Ah, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. The Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So evidently, Adam has been educating Eve about the tree. Let's not even touch it. Satan's plan is to do what Satan always does. God is not being real here. He misrepresents God. God's not being real here, Eve. You're not going to die. He's just exaggerating to make a point. In fact, there is a life out there. There is a better life out there for you than the one that God has planned for you. I can tell you that. I've got some experience with that, Satan says. You can have moral freedom. You can know and experience good and evil in a way only God understands it. You'll know what God knows. In fact, you'll be like God. You can, in one act, steal back control over your moral destiny. Don't act like the, the created pupil. Be the master. Be the teacher. You can find good, tov, apart from God. Wisdom apart from God, it's fruit that would, would look like something that would make you wise was his enticement. So he's basically telling her, even though God has made everything good or tov in the Hebrew, you can find good, you can find wisdom, you can find a better life apart from God. Eve thought, sounds like sound advice. Seems like a wise serpent. So she ate. And she took it to Adam. Now evidently Adam wasn't there because it's very clear from a New Testament passage in 1 Timothy that Adam was not deceived at all, which is really interesting. Adam was not deceived. Timothy makes it extremely clear. I should say Paul makes it extremely clear. Adam was not deceived. So Adam had a choice. And I think here's Adam's choice. God, Eve, Adam does the math. There's one woman on the planet and there's obedience to God and he made the choice that 100% of men when surveyed today would also make. I'm going with her. And so he ate the fruit and he chose a common destiny with Eve. He chose independence from God's will. 
He chose to believe that he could navigate life better by ignoring his creator and designer than by actually doing what God said. And interestingly, we make that choice all the time, even knowing this story. That we can navigate life better sometimes by choosing our own way than maybe what God has laid out for us because he seems to be holding some good back from us as well. Our choices are significant, but not earth-shattering. Adam's was earth-shattering and nature-shattering and historic because he was created in innocence. He had no sin nature. He had no proclivity towards evil. Sort of created in, you might say, positive holiness. I don't know what the right word would be. Certainly innocence, but more than innocence. He had free will, but he was intrinsically good. God created Adam and Eve and said, very good. This is my best work, and it was all good. He's the crown of creation. He's not what he was 10 minutes ago. Consequences were abundant. I want to talk about that. What happened? How did the earth crack? How did we crack? How were we shattered? Well, the goal of Adam and Eve was to know good and evil like God does. The problem is they lost the good and they found the evil. They immediately saw their differences. I find this fascinating. There's one man and one woman on the planet. They're naked. They saw their differences, and they felt such shame in a world with two people that were created within hours of each other and have seen each other unashamed. They immediately felt shame because of their differences, and they felt separation from God. The shame between themselves, interestingly, they, they cover their private parts, basically. And they're the only two people on the planet, and they're married. It's interesting how sin just created shame, like we're bad, and how it connects with sexuality in some way. It's a very interesting study. That's why I think sometimes when we get out of God's will in those arenas of human sexuality, they tend to have a more lasting impact than some other issues. Even though sin is all equally wrong, some things have greater consequences. I think this is an indication of that. They felt shame and separation from God. They hid themselves. They're hiding in the garden. They could not face God. So there's this sense of shame between each other and God. They're relationally broken. I mean, you immediately see your marriage, don't you? They blame. God goes to Adam, what have you done? The woman. Those are the first words out of his mouth, the woman. All right? And he goes one further. I love this. The woman you gave me. It's not just I'm blaming her. I'm blaming you. That wasn't the model I wanted. Immediately. Before, when God creates her, it's like, yes, Isha. Now it's like, relationships are broken. He looks to the woman, what have you done? The serpent, the serpent. And you have the beginning of why we just don't function together in marriage or in friendships or in relationships in general. And then verses 13 to 19, the official consequences. 
or 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you'll go and dust you'll eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you'll bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife. I find this almost funny. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree. Guys are saying, I'll never listen to her again then. All right about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. You'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken for your dust, and to dust you shall return. There were physical consequences. Our bodies were altered in some way. For Eve, some alteration in the birthing process What was intended for joy, bringing children into this world, would now be perilous and outside of modernity, actually a little bit dangerous. Women could die in childbirth. That wouldn't have happened before the fall. For Eve, giving her Adam was now going to be a positive and a negative. The relationship with a man would be more difficult. Your desire will be for your husband. Now, some would say uh, that's talking about control. Your desire will be to control your husband, but he'll rule over you. I don't think that's what it means. I think what it means is this. Your desire to connect with a man, to find this relationship that God wants for you, your desire to connect with a man will be twisted. You're going to yearn for intimacy, but his natural physical dominance intended to protect and care for you and your children because of this new distorted nature, his broken nature, now he's going to tend to rule over you. He was intended to protect and care and nurture, but now he's just stronger than you. It's a little scarier potentially. Nature was broken. For Adam, the ground was cursed. Thorns and thistles, that's new. It's going to be a lot of work. I believe cats were added at this point in creation. (laughs) Possibly mosquitoes, but for sure cats. Physical death, disease now existed, the gene pool would be affected. We no longer bring perfect children into this world as they would have brought into this world. We bring fallen human beings who are affected by disease and death. Spiritual separation from God and life. Access to the tree of life was over. They were pushed out of the garden and it was guarded so they could not eat from the tree of life. Passing on to the sin nature now happens. Whenever a human being comes into this world, they come into this world imperfect and broken, not like Adam and Eve were created. The need for salvation and atonement for our sin is now everyone's problem. We would no longer see things clearly. Rather than learn from this experiment, we don't look back at Genesis 3 and say, well, we're not going to be like Adam and Eve because we now are Adam and Eve by imputation of sin. We repeat it. We search the world for good without God. For wisdom apart from God's wisdom for Tove apart from God's creation and his plan. And we absolutely believe we can find his replacement. We just keep eating the same fruit, convinced that for us, it'll be different. We know better. I want to close with just a few apps here. Shattered. 
First, it's our mess, not God's. You know, the unbelieving world, and even Christians who struggle with certain things in the Scripture, is quick to point to God as the problem. He made this mess. He's in control of this. Well, not so fast. He, he made something that slightly resembles this mess, but he didn't make this mess. He made a perfect world. We made the mess. And yes, he's in control, but he's still given us free will. And I think most of you are glad you have free will, but free will has simply given 8 billion sinners who are self-centered the ability to do whatever they want, and that's going to result in a lot of suffering on the planet. And I don't know that we would want it any other way, because the only way to fix the world is to get rid of all of our free will, starting with you and me, by the way. We'll get to that in a moment. Michael Shermer, publisher of Skeptic Magazine, author of The Science of Good and Evil, so this is not exactly a Christian. I once had the opportunity to ask Thomas Canali, author of Schindler's List, the movie Schindler's List, what he thought was the difference between Oscar Schindler, rescuer of Jews and hero of the story, and Amon Goth, the Nazi commander of the Plasau concentration camp. His answer was revealing. There's not much difference, he said. Had there been no war, Mr. Schindler and Mr. Goth might have been drinking buddies and business partners, morally obtuse, but relatively harmless. What a difference a war makes, especially to the moral choices that lead to good and evil. He goes on to quote Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate those evil people from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. There's not evil people and good people who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. In other words, we all have the capacity for evil. Adam and Eve didn't say right after they sinned, what have we done? You know, spit it out, Eve. Rather, it's your fault, God. And we're still saying it today. It's not hard to find people at all who blame God for the world, just like Adam and Eve did. I am amazed at the depth of evil that I find myself so contemplating and capable of. I shock myself. And if we're honest, we're all capable of a lot, given the right opportunity. Second, we're still trying to find a no good apart from God. Every one of us has a God-shaped sort of hole in our hearts, an appetite to no good, but we fill it with the wrong views of success. We fill it with inappropriate relationships. We fill it with numbing chemicals. We'll try anything and everything before we understand that only God can fill it. For nearly 30 years, there was an art forger named Mark Landis, made headlines for duping dozens of museums into accepting fakes into their collections. He admits he always had a mischievous streak. He would contact museums, he'd use aliases, and dress like a Jesuit priest. With his odd demeanor and near encyclopedic knowledge of art history, he could easily come across as an eccentric art collector. He had incredible skills, and so more than 45 museums couldn't tell the difference between his copies and original works, and they would accept these fakes from him, and I don't know how much money he made off of this, but he was one of the great forgers of modernity. And that's going on in the world today. 
We fall for the fake all the time. Satan is the ultimate forger, and the world is his gallery, and we buy it. Even those of us who are Christians buy it. There's so much that is appealing in this world that is not good from God, and we want a piece of that museum. We want a piece of that gallery in our own lives. We're still trying to find a no good apart from God. Third, wisdom, good, how to live, cannot be found outside of the designer's blueprint. You know, we're doing some renovations in the building, and one of the things that we got to figure out is where are the bearing walls? You know, what wall can we not tear down? Because if we tear it down, the whole building's going to collapse, or a small part of it. You got to find that out. What's the foundation? You need to know the designer's blueprint. Got to go back and get those blueprints, which we had to find from the early, I don't know, late 70s or early 80s, find them and see what's a bearing wall. Because in God's design, that's where we'll find happiness. That's where we'll find fulfillment. That's where we find the appropriate use of our human sexuality. That's where we find what our view of money and resources should be, our view of ourselves. It's all in the blueprint, but we got to find the blueprint, and we've got to build our life off of that foundation. If we don't do that, something's going to fall down. And finally, God immediately put in place the plan to restore everything. I read this earlier. I will, he's talking to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman. There's going to be something going on between you and the woman who you deceived. Between your seed and her seed. Her seed, her sperma in the Septuagint. In other words, the first indication of the virgin birth. If this is different in the Hebrew, you don't have a virgin birth predicted. The virgin birth starts here, her sperma. In other words, her offspring. He, the Savior who will come one day, shall bruise you on the head. He's going to crush your head. You shall bruise him on the heel. It's sort of a foretelling of the crucifixion when Satan looks like he's got victory, but ultimately he is crushed. It's the first prophecy of a Savior, that the seed of the woman who he deceived will ultimately destroy him. It's the first indication of a virgin birth. It's the first promise of Satan's reign being doomed. And that's actually the emphasis here. It's like Satan is one. His realm is, is expanded here, but it's going to be doomed. It's hope for a reborn earth, a reverse of the curse, a new heaven and a new earth. It starts here. And it starts in our lives when we take the offer of salvation as well. We're going to live in an imperfect world, a cursed world, a broken world. And we live as imperfect beings who are broken and shattered. But one of the things that God wants to do is give us a chance to start reversing that in our lives. And we know from the rest of the development of the Scriptures what that looks like. In the New Testament, it's very clear that, that becoming a Christian is, is embracing God's goal to restore the world and to restore us. And to do that, he sent his son to die on a cross, to defeat sin, to defeat Satan, ultimately to win the victory, to undo everything that happened in Genesis chapter 3. But to do that, to take that deal, we need to believe a few simple things. That Jesus is the Son of God, that what Jesus did on the cross paid the penalty for our sins. And we trust in that as atonement for our sin. 
And that because he is the son of God and because he toned for our sin, he has the right to be the Lord of our lives. We embrace him. We commit to him as son of God, savior, and Lord. And that begins the reversal of all the damage done in Genesis chapter 3. We're still imperfect. We still live in an imperfect world. But we start changing back to be more like what God intended us to be. If you've never made that commitment in your life, I just want to put a prayer of faith up on the screen and I'm going to read through it and I would encourage you if you're interested in following Jesus Christ and making that commitment that you just pray this silently in your own heart as I pray it out loud. Jesus, I believe. I believe you are the Son of God and I believe you paid the penalty for my sins on the cross. I believe goodness in life can only be found in following your ways. So I commit my life to you as Son of God, Savior, and Lord. In Jesus' name. There's nothing magical about those words except that they express a heart of faith to begin to follow Christ, to follow Jesus, to undo in our lives what has been broken by the fall. If you prayed that prayer, I really encourage you to let somebody know, a staff member, an elder, uh, let somebody know, because that's where we begin our Christian journey together. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that even though we broke this world, that you were in the business of restoring all things, that there was immediately a plan to fix everything. And in that plan, you demonstrate incredible love for us as you send your son into this world to pay the penalty for our sins as the perfect Lamb of God, the only one who was qualified to save us so that we can be a part of your restored heaven and earth and the restoration of what Adam and Eve once were. Help us to take advantage of your gift of salvation. Help us to be transformed as you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.